Hello and welcome to episode three of Phil's Breakfast Metal. Uh, I'm joined once again by my co-host Rob. Hello. <laughs> and uh, change things up slightly this week, we've got our first guest, Ollie. Hello. Yeah, so slightly different formula this week. Um, we've got Ollie to bring in three albums that like, particularly appeal to him that me and Rob may or may not know anything about. And then me and Rob have both selected albums that we're really into I guess kind of fit the vague theme we've got going here. It's kind of a stoner metal, stoner rock episode yeah. with the first album that has nothing to do with that genre. <laughs> but um, yeah, so some of these, at least one of us will know well, but some we will be talking like after having heard it once or twice. So some of it's first impression, some of it's knowledgeable. The first album we're going to cover today, though, is uh, Machine Head's debut, Burn My Eyes. This one, it's probably worth casting your mind back to the point in time this came out. So this is 1994, um, about a year after Sepultura's Chaos AD, which we'll get to it later, but I think is a massive influence on this. And just before, like, later this year, came out Korn's self-titled debut. This is one of the first big signings to Roadrunner Records. And although not a new metal album, I'm definitely involved in kicking off that genre, like with, as I said, Corn and actually Sepultura on their next album with Roots, which I think comes out mm. 1996, not long after this. So this is, yeah, this is uh, the band Rob formed after he left Violence in, he formed in 92, I think, straight after leaving um, legendary flash band Vio Lens. I don't know whether <laughs> you pronounce that with the apostrophe or not. Um, yeah, uh, formed of a lineup of pretty much unknown other musicians in here. We have Logan Madder on guitar, who lasted quite a long time with the band after this. Adam Deuce, like long-serving bass player until 2012, and Chris Contos, who is only on this album, and it's pretty much the only recording, like or remotely known recording of him. Um, so, Ollie, do you want to like introduce the general kind of genre and? feel of the songs of this album yeah I think uh, as well as being very influential in the new metal scene it was also a very formative album in terms of the groove metal aspect as well it came out uh, just two years after Pantera's Cowboys from Hell which was obviously also very influential in that respect and was very much a forerunner of the the groove metal genre um, really bringing together the um, the sort of thrashy influence of Slayer and um, and the, the sort of Pantera groove metal style and I may have just written that straight from Wikipedia, but, <laughs> but it's, it's true nonetheless. Um, yeah. Well, they're coming around the same time as Chaos AD as well, which is the sort of similar thing. You see emergence of bands doing that sort of combining thrash with sort of more mid-tempo, slower, but groovier styles of metal. Yeah, and in a sense, that's what um, what new metal was kind of all about. I mean, whilst whilst this album, I certainly wouldn't call it new metal. I think Machine Head did go down that route somewhat <laughs> yes. more so after, after <laughs> pretty <this album>. hard. <laughs> Unfortunately, but yeah, but, you can uh, certainly see the influences of that in this album. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so this album, like, largely rated as one of the greatest debuts in metal. I think it, this really set off. Um, Roadrunner's massive takeover of metal and a lot of bands like around this time Fear Factory were also signed to Roadrunner like this was this huge push forward in as you say groove metal um, this kind of like almost post fresh kind of movement mm. this this change towards rather than really fast chugging on every song slower more catchy riffs more memorable riffs 
uh, if that's necessarily improvement or not, I don't know. But say this came out in 1994, Thrash was kind of dying at this point. I think most Thrash bands have easily released their best work and people were kind of sick of it as a genre. Like death metal even at this point was starting its slow churn towards getting boring and repetitive and we see like the full kind of death of those genres and the rise of new metal and around the late 90s couple of years after this yeah and you, and you see I think it was Andrew O'Neill who talked about it as this sort of bright like this breath of fresh air in bands like Machine Head or Korn and some of the early stuff where it was really interesting and really new which was pushed by this fetid wave of shit which came after it of <laughs> terrible new metal bands but at, at the beginning was really interesting ideas and new ways of doing stuff which is still good to listen to today definitely yeah, yeah. As, uh, as we were saying before with uh, Sepultura and Pantera as well I think they were they were all a major part of that of the sort of groove metal thing which um, I suppose in a sense like I said before kind of morphed into new metal in a lot of ways um, yeah it's, it's unfortunate in that respect but uh, so yeah this doesn't have any of the kind of more new metal vocals you might see in Machine Head and the, the following albums like The Burning Red or Supercharger the, although Rob Flynn does well and truly establish his vocal approach for pretty much forever onwards, that kind of... I don't know, how would you describe it, Rob? But... Well, so it's, it's not like a full growl. It's not really a shout, though. It's not Tom Araya. It's somewhere in between the two, uh, which is the vocal style I really like from Rob Flynn, actually, because I listened to The Blackening before this, which I had previously thought was really good. But then listening to this, I think this is much stronger, actually. Uh, I think the vocals, yeah, particularly yeah. on this, are much stronger, because I find the clean vocals sometimes a little bit annoying. And I find the consistency and style of this album to be much more interesting. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think um, his vocal style does lend itself very well to the style of, of music in general. And, um, yeah, it's it's not... It's, it's, it's different to the, the style of, of the likes of Sepultura and Pantera, who we, we talked about before. But... Um, but yeah, it, it suits the, the style very well, I think. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely works well here. We also don't have, like, we don't have any of the kind of more rap-like vocals that you get on uh, famous singles like From This Day or Crashing Around You. Uh, should mention as well, if you haven't, look up the video for Machine Heads <laughs> From This Day. It is utterly hilarious. Like, the, like this is way before the, like, the album, fo- like, the photos of the band for this album, very different look. They look like a fresh band on this all... Dudes with long hair, jeans, and black t-shirts. Not a single Nike or Adidas tracksuit in sight yet. <laughs> that that was all to come soon. Um, but just as we mentioned Sepultura as well, um, one of the songs, I think the one we'll be playing later, uh, the rage, the rage the to ra- overcome, rage to overcome, has a really nice sort of tribal drum intro, which feels very reminiscent of Sepultura trying to include some of the Brazilian tribal drum stuff in their music. Which is again like just a nice way of switching things up from thrash, which can sometimes be a little boring. Yeah, so the drumming was the po- point which I think really made me feel like more of the lean towards Chaos AD's kind of style, where a lot of these songs, especially like the second half of the album, Rage to Overcome into. Death Church, uh, Blood for Blood, like it's really drum-led riffing. It's quite simplistic guitaring, and then these really intricate, interesting drum beats that power the song on, much like you'd get in stuff like Slave New World. But then, like the riff style, as as I was saying, very much borrowed from the Cowboys from Hell style of guitar mm. playing. Yeah, I really like that that sort of aspect of of groove metal in general. The sort of changing variable tempo rather than the, the just 
you know fast and intense thrash i think it makes it it makes it for a much more interesting listening and um it's yeah more catchy as well i think um, for better or for worse yeah yeah i, I think possibly it's a style you can do more with because as i say at this point thrash had very much burnt out like there just was no interest in it because you know all, all the main bands had dropped off and stopped mm. making and they're, they're great stuff and copycats were just getting dull at this stage um although we should say bands like pantera machine head we are about to see in an infinite wave of clones of them <laughs> at, at this stage very fresh very exciting yeah. but <laughs> I, think, I think it happens to every sort of style of music that gets particularly popular at some point the same style will run out of gas but that doesn't mean that the original albums like this album or even like the early slayer and stuff isn't still really good yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah well and truly the the one big difference between this and say cowboys from hell is we do not have that level of lead guitar playing there isn't this band don't have their kind of dime bag daryl yet like so when when we get to the later stuff like the blackening with phil demel uh, also ex-violence guitarist joins like machine head become a very virtuoso band but logan madder who i think does all the solos on this is just not at that level like yeah no, i was gonna, i was gonna say that actually it's not it's not a technically brilliant album by any means but um but it's got some really decent sort of catchy, hard-hitting riffs and a really great drum beat in most of the songs. Yeah, yeah, I think they're very much doing a lot with their level of ability. Like, no one sounds overstretched at any point. I would say the solos kind of let down some of the songs. I think yeah. they're kind of going for melodic, but some of them just sound a bit ugly. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, mentioning the drums as well, actually, this drummer then never really did anything after this, which is a real shame, because I thought the drums on this album were really good, as we've said. Yeah, I've not looked into his reason for quitting or being kicked out. I don't know whether this was a case of possibly he wasn't up to touring or they're, they're no idea why. But then we see straight after his leaving, uh, their like future drummer who pretty much went on for the rest of their career, yeah. um, Dave oh, I've his last McLean, name. I think. Dave McLean comes yeah. in to take over straight after this album. We should say as well, we're probably going to offend some fans because Machine Head have some rabid fans out there. <laughs> I think we're mainly all in the camp of we really enjoyed To Burn My Eyes and then came back in around the blackening. I don't know, where would you say, Ollie? Well, I I was going to um, touch on this a bit, actually. So when I was when I was a lot younger, when I first got into Machine Head, I was sort of in my mid-teens and um, was one, this was one of the first albums that I got into. Um, but I got into this at the same point that their subsequent few albums had already come out, the likes of, like you said, Supercharger and... Um, and the burning red, and at the time I really enjoyed them. They, they really appealed to me as a as a teenager. As a twelve year old, I had a supercharger hoodie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's it's interesting actually that this album deals with some really mature themes, things like you know racism and police brutality, corruption. Um, whereas their subsequent albums, for the most part, I think come across as a bit more angsty, um, which is maybe what, what I, made me sort of appreciate them at the time but they haven't aged as well I don't think I think there there is a certain degree and I don't know how maybe how much this is me kind of projecting onto it but I think there's a certain degree of Rob Flynn purposely following the more angsty angle it, yeah, like right. the following albums do feel like he was trying to make more money out of this sound rather than keeping like the like far more abrasive sound of To Burn My Eyes this is I'd say easily the heaviest album they've ever released. Like it's got the least kind of ins because they like another heavy album like the Blackening or the Locust. 
he's doing the clean vocals they're the long melodic guitar harmonies and so yeah, on yeah. there's none of that if this. you look at like a track like Block on this it's a really intense <laughs> listen I really love that song <laughs> such a great end to the album it just mm. just sort of ties it up so neatly I think yeah Block uh, kind of more in the vein of like a kind of Fear Factory type mm. Um, mm. just really tight heavy riffing um, yeah like not quite to the level of Fear Factory's electronic noise in there, mm. but yeah, it's, it's definitely that kind of feel. Oh, yeah, I'm trying to see if there's anything else worth mentioning. Yeah, so the, the other thing we wanted to mention about this, like, as I said earlier, this is one of the best metal debuts, well, rated as one of the best metal debuts, and uh, yeah, basically want to get people's opinion on this, like, we now, we now have a Gmail account, so We'd like any listeners to email in with ones they think top the to burn my eyes as a great starting album. Um, the email is philsbreakfastmetal at gmail.com, all one word. Um, yeah, just going to go around the table. Like, what did everyone else rate as maybe a better intro to a band? Uh, Rob? Yeah, so um, it's tricky because I, I came from this from hearing The Blackening first, actually. Uh, but I do now think this is probably my favourite Machine Head album that I've listened to. But in terms of other debut albums which match up, I'd probably say Epicus Dumicus Metallicus by Candlemass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a really difficult album to top. Yeah, I'd say um, completely different genre, but uh, another really great debut album for me was uh, Pearl Jam's 10 album, which they really haven't topped since, in my opinion. Um, such a great album, so many um, catchy songs and... Yeah, so memorable. But uh, yeah, in terms of metal, I'm 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 not sure. Um, I I could be wrong in saying this, but uh, I think Pantera's first album was was it Capitalist from Hell? No, they have three albums of oh, like okay. uh, no, more glam rock power metal before this. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, people don't talk about that that much. <laughs> I've listened to the first one. It's not actually that bad. Like, but it doesn't sound any like Phil Anselmo is unrecognisable. Well, so if you listen to a Shattered on the first Pantera, or no, not the first one on Cowboys from Hell. Yeah, they use proper power metal well. vocals stuff. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think I'd go with, it's slightly cheating, but I'd go with Morbid Angels' Altar of Madness, which was a real game changer in terms of technicality for death, like death metal as a whole at the time. Slightly cheating because they, re- they recorded an entire other album beforehand and didn't release it because they didn't think it was good enough. <laughs> um, yeah, so, like, round the table, do anyone, does anyone have any real downsides with To Burn My Eyes, other than the fact it has one of the ugliest album covers I've ever seen? <laughs> peak of 90s bad CG artwork <laughs> uh, I felt like it gets a little sort of samey halfway through and like I think that it's um, it's kind of got its greatest songs at, at either end of, of Block and Davidian in my opinion um, but yeah overall I mean it's, it's a good album it just the, the, a couple of the songs in the middle of the likes of like Death Stretch and um, None But My Own just they just don't really stand out too much to me. Yeah, I would say None But My Own I felt was quite weak. Death Church, I actually, like the sort of the middle of this album I found quite exciting. The the ratio overcome Death Church and A Nation on Fire, um, I felt were really like songs where they did play with the formula a bit more, maybe just because I'm so used to the first two tracks. Like, mm. even if you never heard this album, everyone knows Davidian Inside yeah. Out. Yeah. There's not a metal or rock club around the country, around <laughs> the world that doesn't play that song. Yeah. Possibly just to watch all the metalheads mistime their headbanging for the final <laughs> riff. <laughs> with with the, uh, I, I think that uh, that I may be 
uh, in the minority in this, but I, I've I've heard that song so many times and headbanged it to it so many times that I, I always get that beat. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you know you fucked up, you you yeah. kind of you learn but to I do it right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think this will be a fairly common theme in general with at least me and Phil, but it's probably a little bit too long. Uh, mm. With most albums, I think they could probably be cut down to be a little bit tighter. Um, I understand it is nice to have more material, but in line with what Ollie was saying as well, maybe a few songs could have been cut towards yeah. the sort of middle end of the album. Yeah, say say number my own or I'm your god that don't really match up to the strength of say block old um, a nation on fire block and a nation on fire. And now I haven't seen Machine Head in a long time. And I don't know if these songs get in there, but they strike me as the most mosh pit friendly. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the Machine Head are a mosh pit friendly band already. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I'm not sure how this album features in their live set, but no, no I kind of hope it does because I really like it. It's been a long time since I've seen them live. I've seen them live two or three times, I think, and um, it, mm. each time it featured at least a few songs from, from this album, I think. That's cool. So they still, yeah, still clearly have some love for this. Yeah. Yeah, Although apparently so, still yeah. have some love for Supercharger because they keep playing Bulldozer <laughs> and a few other from that in there. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you guys want to discuss any of the songs in particular, apart from the ones that we've already covered? What do you guys think of uh, Real Eyes, Real Eyes, Real Eyes? Not <laughs> a song per se, but the um, it's an interesting idea. Do you think? Yeah. Uh, so, so this is like right near the end of the album. There's a two-minute sort of interlude track. It's kind of vaguely atmospheric guitar noise with kind of distorted like I think it's Rob Flynn doing it but it's got that sound like a kind of news reporter talking through um, like kind of like re- what sounds like reports of street level violence and yeah, so on it's, it's my impression that it was uh, taken like news clips taken from um, well from the news um, <laughs> and, and cut with clips of uh gang members involved in gang violence and um, yeah, issues of, of racism again and, and that sort of thing. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite yeah, I think different. It, <laughs> it definitely summed up the tone of this album well. So like mm. lyrically, I think this is my favourite Machine Head album ever because they're, they're the least childish they've, they've been. Mm. So they kind of yeah. went off the politics for the new metal phase and kind of came back to it blackening onwards. But I think this does the kind of political, like rage against like racism and so on the most well yeah it f- fits nicely as well because it's a very angry album and it like the lyrical themes there are reasons to be angry about all of this stuff so it feels very tonally consistent which yeah. is nice yeah, something else that's worth mentioning about like tracks like realize and i think a thousand lies has this in the intro as well this kind of putting in a bit of like news recording kind of sound it's really, really hack now. Like, yeah. it's a very done yeah. thing. But I think this is a fairly new kind of idea at the time. And I could be proved wrong. There might be some really good thrash examples I can't, I can't bring to mind. But this is quite a kind of, yeah, a technique that's done loads. But, yeah, quite effective at this point in time. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, going back to A Thousand Lies, um, I think that uh, that's, uh, lyrically, it's a very interesting song. It talks about... Um, Rob Flynn's kind of growing up in, in like a, an urban inner city environment and um, his struggle with poverty and drug addiction and, and selling mm. drugs as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I think you've mentioned to me before, <laughs> Yeah, right? um, apparently, and I don't know how corroborated this is, um, when releasing this album, Rob Flynn made, had to make a very serious career choice whether he was going to 
be in Machine Head or get more into drug dealing. Like, <laughs> he couldn't defend his territory and be in Machine Head at the same time. So, well, I think he made the right choice. I'm sure you'll be hearing from Roadrunner's lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, allegedly. Yeah. <laughs> right, so from this album, we thought we'd say, like, to give a representative track that isn't Davidian, because you've all heard it a million mm. times, um, we'd go for the Rage to Overcome to play us out on this set. This is just a really powerful, hefty track, like very, yeah, very mosh pit friendly riffing mm. and features the only solo I really like on this album.
The next sound we're covering today is uh, Fi by Truck Fighters. She doesn't have a subtitle as well. Uh, I don't think it does. Okay, I could be wrong then. Okay, just Fi by Truck Fighters. Yeah. This is a like the most modern of the albums we're playing. This was released in 2007 on Fuzzarama Records and Poison Tree Records. I don't know quite. I think, I think Poison Tree was in the US and Fuzzarama was everywhere else. Ah, fair enough. I think. This is... Um, relatively unknown at this point in time I think they're getting a fair following these days truck fighters they're a Swedish band started in 2001 this is their second album released in 2007 um, this is very archetypal stoner doom rock metal I mean I, I, what do you reckon like what would you describe this album as musical style wise yeah definitely very um, like stoner rock kind of thing um Almost kind of alternative rock in, in a lot of places. And I, I would say less doomy mm. for the most part. Yeah, Although that's pretty wrong. Although it's very bright light on local, uh, local, vocals, rather. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, great album, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I, the thing that really distinguishes this for me is, I suppose, the fuzz sound that they get from it. They make it, a lot of these riffs sound really heavy. Uh, the, just like the bass and guitar working together for an amazing sort of bass edge to this. Uh, Chameleon's a great example of that on this. Actually, I think... Um, Atomic as well, which is what we'll, uh, one of the ones we'll play, potentially, and Warhead as well, get this amazing, really heavy sound, which really separates them out for me of other stoner rock bands, like well-known Queens of the Stone Age or something. Uh, these guys sound much heavier, I think, and that really brings out how well-written their riffs are. Yeah, so this is probably far more in the camp of rock than metal. This is like, mm. they, there's, like, moves towards metal. I think the guitars are quite detuned. um but yeah, like the vocals very clean. Um, the riffs never get crazily heavy. Like they're very big sounding, but they're not yeah, like yeah. we don't get any fast chugging. Um, this is all very much in that ultra fuzzed out, um, yeah. very groove laden stoner rock. Yeah, some some leanings towards like southern metal as well, possibly, or is that unfair? I think so. Yeah, you can definitely see influence of bands like Caius in this as well. It's cool. It sounds like that, but on steroids, really. <laughs> where did Caius hail from? Are they California or? Uh, I think it's California, but I can't remember. Oh, okay, uh, I'll have to double check that. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would agree. Um, very much similar sound to bands like Caius, and um, maybe similar, maybe similar to Down as well. Yeah, yeah. The like down will be the band we're covering next. There is a big overlap in sounds between these two. Mm. Absolutely. I suppose the most different bit being the vocals, because you have a sort of more traditional stoner style vocals on this album, uh, not the sort of impressive vocal range of someone like Phil Anselmo, which I like. I I really enjoy, particularly on this album. Um, they're maybe slightly weaker live, I think, the vocals, but. The sort of particularly watching videos of them live, they give such an energetic performance, they're covered in sweat and really high energy, smashing the hell out of the drums that they look like enormous fun to watch, and they really put their all into it. Yeah, so like the vocals on this album are very much like the kind of quite an interesting point to them is they are very low in the mix and they are mm. quite infrequent. Like a lot of songs, they won't come in until two or three minutes in. It's not so much of that kind of verse chorus structure like you have long instrumental passages so the band's a four piece we have um bass player ozzo is also the vocalist then freddo and dango on guitar and paco on drums um they all have swedish names which i can't even <laughs> there is no point in me attempting to pronounce but and, yeah and now i think the only two members that are left now are ozzo and dango 
because um, we've, we've sent Paco, he hurt his wrist and now can't play drums anymore. And Fredo was on this album, but is now not part of the band. They now perform as a three-piece. Yeah, so it seems like after like both uh, Paco and Fredo left in 2008, so it seems like they departed pretty soon after this album. And yeah, now Truck Fighters have slimmed down for a three-piece, not only studio, but live as well. Yeah, I think the other thing about this album is um, which becomes evident as you look at the more recent Truck Fighters albums like Mania, um, is that there's quite a lot of variation that they've built up over time in terms of more psychedelic elements, more rock-like elements. And you can definitely see that on bits of this album, bits of Chameleon, maybe in the middle of Warhead and some bits mm. of songs like Traffic. You can definitely hear that there's a lot of psychedelic rock influences coming into it for some lighter sections, which then make the riff sound a bit heavier. And that's definitely sort of become even more prevalent as they've gone on. But I really like the amount of t- typical sort of stone of really heavy fuzzed out riffs that you get on this yeah absolutely I agree I think um, it's such an interesting album as well it, there's so much variation in it um, and like you were saying it's not it's not heavy on the lyrical content and um, the lyrics are by no means at all an integral part of, of the album um, they play a major role in some of the songs but for the most part it, it's just sort of an addendum to the music um, and the, the music really sort of is centre stage yeah, yeah. I, I mean, of of the three of us, I'm by far the the least familiar with Truck Fighters, and I'd say give, giving this album like a thorough listen, I didn't even notice what the lyrics were. I didn't, I, <laughs> I didn't really clock the vocals all that much. Like the main thing I think that's very noticeable about this, and this this distinguishes, I think, two camps of like stoner bands. This feels like a band that write their songs by jamming. Mm. I, I would you agree about Ollie? This, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. I, I, like I said, the the um, the vocals, it's just an addendum. I, I think they um they may be the I think probably when, when the songs were first recorded, um it's just part of a, a jamming session as you say and maybe the, the singer just feels that a certain part would locals that vocals would lend themselves quite well to that particular set and then maybe writes actual lyrics for it mm. afterwards that just fit the the rhythm and, and yeah. I think in terms of songwriting they do really well as well particularly Chameleon which is the 10 minute sort of monster song on this <laughs> album which has this huge sort of build up section in the middle uh, it's got some vocals at the beginning but it has this enormous build up section leading into what I think is almost certainly the best riff on the album Yeah, uh, and, and one of my favourite riffs of all time which just builds it up slowly it doesn't have any vocals but it's really nicely written so when it finally gets into it it has a real weight to it yeah, th- this song is very much a starts off your classic stoner rock style intro and then goes fully into psychedelic kind of lots of very atmospheric guitar parts mm. over kind of a building like a drum and bass part building it up yeah. and then ends in this kind of like just probably brutal stoner metal kind of headbanging ending. It's yeah, it's an incredible track. Mm. Definitely yeah. the standout from the album. Absolutely, I think that um, that's perhaps something that this album has in common with um, a few of the tracks from the Machine Head album that we discussed before. Is that um, a few like a lot of the songs um, have this big build up and come to a major sort of crescendo, and it's it's really great to sort of listen to and to, to bang your head to and stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. Um, Production wise, it's quite an interesting album. Like. There's, this is a very bass-driven album. For, and for a band with two guitarists, that's kind of a rare sound. Like The bass guitar is so prominent in the mix in this, and the bass guitarist does a lot to keep things really interesting. He's 
while not a massively technical player, he does a huge amount of like weird effects to keep the tone varied between songs. I mean, all the guitars are incredibly effective as well. Like we go for like kind of a lighter sound to these hugely fuzzed out riffs. Like you have the really nice sort of psychedelic leads on the guitar as well. Mm-hmm. But particularly for a band which has more rock leanings, even more so as it goes on, it's really nice to hear such an impressive bass sound from the album. On the guitars as well, the bass on the guitars is really good. So it just gives the album this like just this weight to it, which of a lot of rock bands might be a bit lacking. And that, that's not always a bad thing, but it's really nice to hear that in this album. <laughs> yeah, I think like this is parallel with a reference just for me, but like Salt Rubbed Eyes by uh, Seance with that just like more bass than you would ever expect on an album but yeah it sounds huge and it mm. definitely plays their favour this is the only truck fighters I'm familiar with do they continue in this vein sound wise I think Mania's quite similar to this um, the vocals are a bit different I think do they have guest vocals on that album I can't um, remember actually okay um, I, I think they do if, if I remember right um, though I might be thinking of a different album or maybe a different band but um, but, but yeah I, I think that's the case I think um, I don't know about the likes of Gravity X and um, so yeah so Gravity X is the one before this which is okay. arguably even more sort of straight stoner style stuff mm-hmm. with a few like a little less like psychedelic influence and then they've got the Universe and V which is or 5 which has just come out uh, relatively recently and they've got the Chairman EP as well after this and I was reading an interview with them, and they were saying that they essentially want to incorporate more sort of rock elements and more variation into it. Not as sort of a commercial thing, but just to try to reach a wider audience of people. Uh, but they still keep these really sort of heavy riffs. So even if there are more sort of rock-like, quiet, melodic sections, they still have this really heavy bass sound. And particularly if you watch them live, the bass is center stage and is what drives the whole sound, which is really cool. Yeah, so my only real criticism of this album is I don't get the vocals. I'm not. I'm really not a fan of the vocalists. Now, that's kind of forgivable because, as I said before, he's, his vocal parts, like his bass clearly incredibly important, but his vocal parts are not a big effect on this album. I don't know, you two are both far more into the vocals than me, though, I think. Yeah, I don't object to the vocals too much, but I, I do get where you're coming from. Um, it's the, the vocals aren't heavy in the slightest, and it, it's... Um, I wouldn't say it's like perfectly clean vocals, but certainly it's not. It's not especially like sort of growly uh, or like shouty at all. Um, and I, I think maybe you could say it maybe comes across as a bit whiny in places. It, he's just like he's mostly clean for the album, but often with a lot of distortion added to the vocals as well. But uh, yeah, I find he's very one tone, and it's not a particularly great tone. Like I think if the vocals are more front and center, they would definitely hurt the album. But as they are, they're kind of ignorable if you don't like them or if you're into them you know they just fit into the sound in the background yeah I think so music's definitely the sort of centre stage of this right so for this album we decided we would have loved to play Chameleon to play us out but it's 10 minutes long so you have to (laughs) look that up elsewhere we thought we'd go for the intro track to this album Atomic which is again just a really representative track of theirs just very groove heavy very distorted very fast
third album we're covering today and second of Ollie's choices. This is down to um, a bustle in your hedgerow. Uh, this is, this was released in two thousand two, like a f- pretty long time after the first Down album. Now, if you're not familiar with Down, they're very famous stoner rock, stoner metal supergroup. Um, we've got Phil Anselmo lead vocals. Uh, obviously of Pantera, Pepper Keenan of uh, Corrosion of Conformity on guitar, uh, Kurt Winstein of uh, Crowbar and Kingdom of Sorrow on guitar, um, Rex Brown of Pantera on bass, also now of Kill Devil Hill, but I've not listened to them, I don't know if any of you have checked them out. I haven't. And, fi- uh, yeah, and finally on drums, Jimmy Bower of I Hate God. Mm. Like, so this is a proper super group album, like these are people legendary in kind of this style of music, I guess doing something slightly different to their pretty actually yeah, less heavy than pretty much every one of their other bands called down because it's the band they do in their downtime. Mm. Um, yeah. Ollie, do you want to introduce this album then? Yeah, sure. So, um, this is my favorite down album. It's, uh, I'm, I'm fond of all of their albums, but this one really stands out for me as being, um, a bit different from the other albums, but just like a really unique sound and, um, yeah, just a really interesting album. I think it came. Uh, I think it was seven years after their first album, which is uh, Nola, uh, released in nineteen ninety five. Um, yeah, just just a really great album. I think uh, really good stoner metal sound. Um, really interesting songs. Yeah, I think the thing that kind of uh, keeps us apart from say other bands like uh, Crowbar and Corrosion of Conformity, very much in the stoner metal camp, is this has a hell of a lot of the more obvious blues influence. So yeah. there is a real leaning in the songs back to kind of classic old 60s, 70s blues. And yeah, like maybe even some country influences as well. There seems to be a, like, this is definitely the band members showing off their love for music outside of the metal realm. Yeah, it's a lot mellower than um, a lot of other stoner rock bands as well. Mm. Or stoner metal bands rather. Um, yeah, particularly the likes of, of Crowbar, I think are... Um, quite a bit heavier than this yeah Crowbar a pretty hefty band I thought particularly with this album as well like it really showcased a love of Sabbath which I think all of these (laughs) members almost all metal musicians obviously have there's a lot of sort of very Sabbath-y riffs in here which I really liked I really liked that sort of given that sort of sound with more modern production values and a nice bass sound just sounds really nice yeah the tracks like uh, There's Something on My Side has these really driving Ioni style riffing. Mm. Obviously, when say Sabbath influence, I mean the standard metal Sabbath influence of sounds like their guitaring <laughs> and their kind of vocal delivery. No one seems to have really taken on the Sabbath rhythm yeah. section. Yeah. Mm. And obviously, that's a huge influence on stoner metal anyway. But I was, I was, that's yeah, I was particularly compared to the other bands these guys are in, Corrosion of Conformity, and I hate God. I was really sort of pleasantly surprised by the amount of sabbath style riffing that was in this yeah um you mentioned um the sort of the aspect of it being a side project and, and things i uh, i don't know of anyone who's in more side project bands than phil anselmo i think he's he's, uh, he's got about <laughs> 10 bands on the <laughs> yeah it's like this current one phil anselmo and the illegals i've, I've mm-hmm. not checked mm-hmm. out there's obviously super joint ritual who are i think another super group they've got a lot of fairly famous yeah, members i think they've uh, reformed now as just just super joint because yeah. uh, that's uh, jimmy bowers involved in that as well uh, of course yeah yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so this is this is very much. I think I think Phil drives a lot of this, but I don't know who's re- like. Do either of you know who's really responsible for writing a lot of this? I don't. Um, I, I 
would like to say Phil Anselmo is probably responsible, um, just because that seems the most logical. Mm-hmm. I think he was responsible for sort of getting getting the people together to, to do it. Um, but yeah, I, I can't say for sure. Yeah, I mean, much like um, Truck Fighters before this, this has enough, This album also has a kind of jammed feel in places. Mm-hmm. There are yeah, a lot of sections of songs that kind of draw out, and it's clear musicians wrote, if not like jamming it live, like definitely wrote these parts to, um, yeah, wrote these parts messing around in the studio. Yeah, what you were saying before about them being uh, very influenced by Sabbath, I was just thinking uh, the final track on the album, Landing on the Mountains of Megiddo, is, um, seems very reminiscent of like Planet Caravan, I would say. Yeah, so this is, this is a track I really wanted to get to. I think actually possibly my favourite from the entire album. This is fa- fairly a departure from the rest of the album, I'd say. Mm. There's not much like it. It's really uh, psychedelic rock-influenced um Every, yeah, it's something quite interesting about it is everyone seems to play weird instruments on it. Like um, we have Phil Anselmo credits guitars on this track. Um, uh, Pepper Keenan plays the timpani as well. Yeah, <laughs> and Rex Brown plays keyboards, and they get a guest female vocalist in who I've not noted the name of. But uh, yeah, so it, they, and it, this woman's vocals pretty much lead the song. I don't know if Phil does any singing on it at all. I don't know. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's very mellow though compared to the other tracks on the album. Mm. I'd say, like I was saying this to Rob earlier, I think it's incredibly reminiscent of some of the more weird jamming stuff from early Monster Magnet. So, like, possibly a more better executed like version of songs like Tab or mm. um, yeah, a lot of the tracks from Spine of God that go into that kind of very long psychedelic build-up stuff. Outside of that, like a lot of the songs are far more in the vein of "There's something on my side." I mean, this. Like these kind of very groove laden um, four or five minute songs, pretty standard verse chorus structure. Yeah. yeah. Like no one's massively showing off in the lead guitar department. Like. No, no, um, yeah, I completely agree. I, um, yeah, when, when was it that um, Dimebag died? So Dimebag is actually still alive at the point of recording of this album, so he died two years after this. So, okay. so, so yeah, I suppose this was um, maybe. Phil Anselmo's way of getting away from the sort of, you know, heavy guitar-influenced songs. I mean, Dimebag really led a mm. lot of Pantera's songs. Um, whereas this, it's it's almost like all of the like, members of the band really contributing equally, in, in a sense. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I, I With all these people, I think most of them are the main writer behind mm. their current project, especially someone like Kurt Weinstein, who, yeah, uh, like he is effectively Crowbar, I think. Yeah. That's very interesting as his project. This has got that very, as we were saying earlier, like jam feel, but it feels very sort of relaxed in a way. Like n- there's no really fast, aggressive songs like some of the Machine Head we were talking about earlier. It's it's got like a, it's definitely got quite a heaviness to it in that sort of Sabbath way, but it doesn't feel rushed or anything. And it, it in that sense, it does sort of feel like getting away from some of the stuff that was done in Pantera, which is really fast and aggressive. And this is more laid back and takes different influences from uh, what these musicians like, other than the stuff they normally do. Yeah, talking of Pantera, if you're used to Pantera and never heard down, Phil Anselmo's vocal delivery is completely different. Mm. So. He pretty much shies away from that kind of more shouting style. It, like this, this is him properly singing, and as anyone who's heard very early Pantera will know, he does actually have a very good singing voice. Like, yeah. But at the same time, it's uh, is it's still very different from very early Pantera as well. It doesn't have mm. any of that really mm. like high pitched power metal vocals that, that are, were characteristic of uh, early Pantera. But um, but yeah, 
Yeah, really definitely. From, from Having such a huge vocal range is really good, though. Like, it allows him to do all these projects and still sound as if he's exactly the right vocalist for it, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, um, yeah, we're, we're really bigging Phil and Sam Could such a great man have any flaws? <laughs> yeah, looking at the show notes, I can see one saying, mention Phil being a dick. But it's kind of the elephant in the room with any Phil and Sam based project, Ev, especially in light of recent events. Um, yeah, how do both of you resolve still listening to Phil Anselmo's work with it being caught on camera that he is definitively a prick? I mean, I always have a little voice in my head when I listen to Pantera or something like this or Down that just saying it's Phil Anselmo singing. And that, and that puts me off a little bit. But I think you can't deny that he is a really great vocalist. And like a lot of Pantera I have some nostalgia for, if it's, even if it's not something I listen to that often these days. And listening to Down, you know... He does his job musically really well. So, I mean, I think he is a massive dick, but he's still a good, he's still a good vocalist, regardless of that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's, um, it is difficult, and different people come at his outbursts, should we say, in, um, <laughs> from, from like a different angle. Like, people that try to defend him, um, well, I mean, you know, aside from the, the actual racists who will, will say, yeah, yeah, Phil, <laughs> yeah. people, people, like, Former bandmates will say, "Well, it's just it's just Phil being a dick, being an idiot. Basically, he doesn't mean any of that. It's not what he's about." Mm. Um, and just sort of try and blow it off. And I guess I I come at it from kind of a similar angle. I think Phil, you know, he has a problem with drink, definitely, and um, maybe he did think it was supposed to be some sort of bizarre joke. Um, you know, I, I can't say I'm not I'm not a mind reader. I don't know what's what's in his heart, but uh, I know that like lyrically, I've not heard anything that would suggest to me that there's any sort of racist aspect to the music. Mm. So um, yeah, I think if there was, then it would put me off definitely. But, um, but yeah, that, that's how I feel about it. I I think that that's probably a fair summation. Like this isn't like. It's never crept into Downward's lyrics, as far as I can tell, and it's not crept into a lot of his other bands. The incident we're obviously referring to is Phil Anselmo shouting white power at the end of uh, Dime Bash uh, 2015. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's there's some some lyrics of Pantera, like Five Minutes Alone is a good example of a song where it just seems like Phil is behaving like a thug, and like I'm not really interested in that. Uh, the, the other lyrical common, um, content of Pantera is absolutely fine, and I like it, but there's just some bits of that which are, I think, quite annoying and grating to listen to. But as we were saying, in Down, that's not really a problem. Yeah, there's, I think. Um, yeah, there's a story behind Five Minutes Alone, actually. I, I probably screwed this up because I only read about it once a while ago. Um, Five Minutes Alone, I think, is about... Uh, was it about a metal gig, maybe, and someone at the there's gig? A guy, there's a guy in the crowd who pissed off Phil Anselmo, and then Phil Anselmo got the crowd to beat him up. And then his dad or something oh, said, yeah, if yeah. I could just get five minutes alone with Phil Anselmo, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'd teach him not to do that or something. <laughs> and so they wrote a song about it. Yeah. yeah it's kind of childish, I guess. But uh, I, I think I, I don't think that... that um, that he's singing from his own perspective, I guess. He's singing from the perspective of this guy that wants to beat him up, I, I suppose. Yeah, I just, I mean, I think the bit that really troubles me is inciting a crowd to do anything yeah, to someone. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I just can't get on board with that. I mean, that's a truly shitty thing to do. Mm. And you should know if you're on stage, you have that kind of power and should never, yeah. ever use it. Yeah, well, it's not the first time that, um, that Phil's, you know, done something stupid like that. I mean, 
many people would argue that he is partly responsible for Dimebag dying. Even I mean, he he came yeah, in a yeah. Hammer interview, I think, and said, um, you know, because because Dime, Dimebag was such a pain in the ass to talk with, he said, I wish someone would kill Dimebag. <laughs> so, so foolish, yeah. and some some psychopaths, you know, went to their gig with a gun and yeah. shot him. So, yeah, that's uh, some huge uh, huge Pantera fan blame taking mm-hmm. Phil's kind of word for it being Dimebag's fault that project fell apart. Uh, so my kind of stance on Phil is very similar to a lot of metal musicians like often black metal musicians tend to be the place to reconcile that of I can separate the person's music from the personality so um, we were talking of great debut albums before um, Emperor's debut absolutely like perfect example of early black metal listen to it loads I've seen it perform live by most of the original lineup, which includes a murderer. Like, yeah. and I have to, yeah, reconcile that you know, Faust definitely not a good person, but I still listen to his music. And yeah, I can fully understand people wanting to cut off influences like that, but effectively, I think you can you can compartmentalize on this, and it's pretty much what you have to do with Phil. But I think I think the bright side that comes out of this is um, after this incident occurred at Dimebash, uh, Pepper Keenan, the guitarist of Croatian Conformity, and Dan was saying that basically he doesn't agree with what Phil said at all. He thinks it's a really bad thing to say, but he welcomes him back into the fold. He doesn't want Dan to collapse as a result of this, and, and they haven't. Um, was just sort of, you know, we can work this out. This doesn't have to be the end of anything. It was a stupid fucking thing to do, and that can be fixed. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, it should be mentioned as well, like, uh, Kurt, no longer a member of uh, Down, and as well, uh, Rex Brown has also left. So it's becoming less and less of a supergroup these days. I think... Um, the line's mainly been filled up by other I, I Hate God members and a few mm. other less-known musicians, so I think very much more becoming Phil, like, more obviously another one of Phil's projects. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, uh, I think you're right there. Um, but yeah, going back into the, the music, are there any songs on the album that, that stuck out in particular for you guys? I think you remember, I remember you saying about um, Landing that we discussed before, but uh, what about you, Rob? Uh, so... I think, well, I have to say the one that we're going to play, actually, there's something on my side, yeah, uh, which, I mean, I really felt the influence of corrosion and, con- corrosion and conformity in the guitars of that as well, which is probably the side project of these which I like the most. Um, and I liked the variation of Phil's vocals on that song, but on the album in general, how he uses different techniques, and you can hear every now and then he does what almost approaches some of the screams that he does in Pantera, just sort of in the background to add to the atmosphere. I think that's really nice. Uh, but I definitely say something on my side is probably my favourite song from this album. Yeah, the same for me. I think I mentioned before that it's, it's probably one of my favourite songs sort of of all time. Really, it's it's got such a great sort of catchy beat to it and and rhythm and um, just a great riff and yeah, it's just such a great song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, outside of that, I sort of I really enjoy stuff like Beautifully Depressed, which has a, a to mention again like has quite a monster magnitude vibe to it, like kind of more in the kind of psychedelic rock camp than the stoner metal or stoner rock camp. Like, this this album is long as hell. We've got 15 tracks. I think yeah. it's the best part, 70 minutes. So, yeah. and it, it nearly justifies that runtime. We go through a lot of different feeling songs. We get some, like, very bluesy ones into um, some more, like, the first two tracks are really hefty metal songs, mm-hmm. really. Um, and we've got some... Plain stupidity in Doob interlude, which <laughs> yeah. I don't think it needs any further explanation. Yeah, for an album that's so long, I think they could have done with maybe cutting out the filler, the likes of uh, maybe Flambeau's jamming with St. Augustine, if that's 
considerable length. Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, I've cut yeah, the names off. And do interviewed. I mean, they're quite sort of quirky and interesting tracks, but the album is so long as it is, and it is, mm-hmm. it is a great album. Yeah. Um, it has some yeah really strong songs on there. Um, I yeah, I think maybe that wasn't necessary to keep the filler tracks, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I guess so. It is very hard for any band to justify the best part of a seventy-minute runtime. Yeah, Not yeah. many nail that. Yeah. yeah. All right, we fought for this set. We go for um, as we keep banging on about it. There's something on my side.
fourth album we're covering today is Mad Seasons Above. This is the final of Ollie's free suggestions and probably the one where me and Rob are most out of our depth. This is a grunge, a grunge supergroup uh, released in 1995 um, on Columbia Records, so big release. I think um, Ollie's probably best place to give us the intro story <laughs> to this album. Yeah, certainly. So uh, the lead singer in this album, Lane Staley, is best known for um, leading Alice in Chains uh, before they broke up and then reformed. Um, this album came about as a, a way of trying to get Lane Staley to, to do some music with a bunch of sober musicians as a way to try and get him off drugs, basically. It was, uh, I think the idea behind the album was that of um, Jerry Cantrell, the, the guitarist for Alice in Chains. Yeah. Um, yeah, he hoped that, that being being around a bunch of other sober musicians would help so, sober up his, his friend and bandmate, Lane Staley. Um, yeah, if anyone knows much about Alice in Chains and Lane Staley, they'll know that, that Lane struggled with a, a drug problem throughout pretty much most of his life. Mm. Um, I think he got into drugs at a fairly young age. Um, his life, yeah, it's, it's, his whole life is just a one of misery and woe basically um i think his his parents divorced when he was seven and his life just sort of went downhill after that um his after his parents separated because his dad had a problem with drugs um mm. he uh, i think his his family told him that his dad had, had died even though and then he didn't see his dad for another 15 years after that thought that, that his dad was was dead um but yeah, so so uh, so the the band came about as a way of trying to get Lane off drugs, but uh, unfortunately didn't work, um, and Lane relapsed on his drug problem and uh, ended up ODing in two thousand and two. Sadly, mm. but uh, but the whole album it's it's so it sounds so positive. It sounds like Lane sort of accepting his demons and and is is you know on the path to recovery, which makes it all the more kind of sad and somber that you know what happened in the end is. Yeah, he died. Mm. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's a great album. And um, whilst I say that the, the Lane is such a major part of it in writing the lyrics and stuff, um, at the same time, all of the band members that, that come from other major bands, like you said, um, that they all contribute greatly. And um, the album is very interesting musically. It's, um, it's not like your typical grunge band or your typical um, rock band, even for the most part. It's very sort of alternative. There's a lot of different instruments on there. Um, in the track that I think we're going to listen to, um, Long Gone Day, I think there's a saxophone and a keyboard on there as well. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting album, I think. So yeah, so it's got members of a whole bunch of different sort of grunge bands. Uh, ones that I'm not aware of, actually, or I'm aware of when we listen to this album, uh, Screaming Trees and the Walkabouts, which I haven't heard much of. Yeah, so the lineup is uh, Barrett Martin of Screaming Trees on drums, um, Mike McCready of Pearl Jam on lead, lead guitar, um, uh, John Baker Saunders of the Walkabouts on bass, and obviously Lane Staley um, as the main vocalist for this. Uh, yeah, we're, I think bar Ollie, we're all slightly too young to have hugely got into grunge. It kind of ended by my kind of music listening phase. Well, to be fair, I, I wasn't into grunge at all when I was the right age for it. I, I had an atrocious taste in music when I was uh, <laughs> young, and um, I actually didn't really get into the, the music that was popular when I was quite young until mm. um, probably until I was into my early 20s at least, um, by which point, like, a lot of my 
now favourite bands had, had disbanded and yeah, half the members yeah. had, had died mostly of drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty sad really. Uh, Pearl Jam is still going, fortunately. And um, yeah, just to say a bit about uh, Mike McCready and um, he really contributes a different a difference in sound in this band to Alice in Change. I think that's he, he's one of the the major aspects of the, of that driving mm. that. Um, Alice in Chains are much more sort of jammy, I think, in their um, their recording style. Um, whereas I think with Mike Rafiti's style, it's it almost seems much more structural. There's much more kind of thought goes into the the structure of his his playing and, and things. Um, I think the thing I found listening to this one as well is that it had a real sort of had a variation of elements. I think one of um, I can't remember which one of them was saying I was reading this on the wiki just before I was talking about there's some jazz elements, there's some blues elements, there's some arena rock elements. There's a whole bunch of stuff stuff in it. I think the blues is what really stood out to me when comparing it to the um, Alice in Chains stuff that I mainly know, uh, which was really nice to hear the same vocals that you hear in Alice in Chains over a different style of music, which allowed him to try a lot of different. Uh, techniques, so particularly um, Long Gone Day, which we'll listen to, has a lot of sort of quieter vocals and really gives him a chance to shine in different areas that he hasn't normally um, performed in. Yeah, yeah, I would argue this is, like, although a grunge supergroup, this is weren't really not a grunge album. It doesn't really have the kind of guitar and drum elements you would expect from that style. Mm. It is far more rooted in... I think, really, this seems like... I don't know who's mainly responsible for writing, but this does seem like a love letter to the kind of classic rock and psychedelic rock of the yeah. 60s and 70s. And, yeah, it is very interesting hearing uh, Lane Staley sort of go for a slightly different vocal delivery. Like, the sort of the really mellow stuff at the start of this album is a very... Uh, yeah, you know, a kind of a departure, but especially from like dirtier Alice and James. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a bit more similar to some of their work on uh, facelift, I think, and um, SAP, and uh, the um, the MTV Unplugged session that Alice and James did. A lot of the the songs that were used on that are, are somewhat similar to the songs on this. Mm. Um, yeah, and on top of the core lineup in this album, we've got um, a lot of like weird additional uh, instruments as Ollie was saying uh, saxophone in one of the ending tracks and a hell of a lot of Hammond organ in the background again mm. the kind of real throwback to 60s and 70s and the sound I love which really yeah, yeah really um, helps like create a big atmosphere for these songs and it feels very different to a lot of the other bands like Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or other, the other contemporaries you might compare them to as we're saying a lot of it doesn't really sound like a grunge band at all it, it really helps make it sound very individual. Yeah, it was a, they were such a unique band, and they only did this one album. Um, yeah, I think it's just a real shame that, that it didn't continue and uh, that, that they you know, fell back into his old habits. Um, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how this album did sort of critical acclaim-wise. I mean, Columbia Records released three singles from it, so it implies that this was well received at the time. I think it did moderately well, but it didn't do anywhere near as well as uh, any of Alice in Chains' albums, mm. um, and probably not anywhere near as well as Pearl Jam's early stuff either. No, no. Although, it was like to top the success of albums like Ten and Dirt would be <laughs> pretty spectacular <laughs> yeah. for essentially a more blues-driven album. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you the the sort of blues influence, I suppose, is something that really ties together a lot of the albums that we've discussed today. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're all quite blues heavy. I, I suppose um, 
The Machine Head album. Machine, <laughs> as I said at the start, Machine Head definitely the odd one out here. But yeah, so this album does like like Down's second album does lead quite well into this because Down's sort of getting mellow with their kind of old 60s, 70s blues leaning, and this is getting pretty mellower still, but maybe taking it slightly more in a classic rock direction in places. Although I think it's I'm Alone on this album. It's near enough for like a really slow 12-bar blues song. This is a, yeah, very, very mellow, very, like, still catchy, though. Like, it's still got noticeable choruses and so on, but... Yeah, it's, then, it, it's a nice comparison to take to Down, actually, because it sort of seems like they're stepping out of their main projects and writing a love letter to all the other things they're influenced by and taking that into their music. In a way, this has that element to it as well. They're taking a lot of elements that maybe they can't incorporate into Alice in Chains or Pearl Jam and adding them into this new album they do with a new set of people to make something that sounds really different. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very experimental album, really. Uh, and I think lyrically and, and theme-wise, it's, uh, it's also kind of depressing I guess and, and very somber and that fits very well with the, the bluesy aspect of mm, the music mm. uh, it's it's all to do with overcoming drug addiction and depression for the most part yeah it's I suppose there's a link to Machine Head because oh, yeah, uh, in, yeah. in terms of the lyrical content which makes the album feel particularly if you know the context of this it feels sort of really heartfelt and really real and I think that to some degree adds to the album's power because it sounds really honest and genuine Mm. when it talks about these sort of difficult themes. Yeah, I think uh, the lead singers of all three albums that I've chosen are, are or were drug addicts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely well, a theme there. Make of that what you will. Yeah, like The only sort of real criticism I have of this album, because I think for musicians coming to genres they don't normally play, they do a very admirable job of kind of replicating that sound to some extent and to another extent making their own kind of sound here. The real criticism I have of this, and I'm sure they would have got this better had they done more, is it does have a tendency to be a little disjointed. Track to track, it does really switch up genres. So you've got like a very rock song going into a, mm. an extremely mellow blues song. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree with that. Um, some of the songs are much heavier than others as well. Uh, the mellowest song on the track, probably River of Deceit, is, is very mm. slow-paced and very quite sort of sad and melodic song whereas other aspects are a lot more jazzy and kind of like said bluesy and there's uh, an instrumental track on there as well November Hotel which is again just more bluesy and doesn't really have that somber feel to it for the most part and I think this might be thoroughly to do with the fact this is a super group doing their first album so they're throwing every idea they want to get out that they can't get out in their main band mm. yeah. and yeah it, it does result in this kind of quite eclectic album but then again like it might have less of a flow but it does stay very interesting for its hour runtime like i wouldn't say there was a a track that was stand out as a bad one on it at all no, yeah. no, no. absolutely i think that's something that i really like about this this album as well it's uh it's such an interesting album there's there's so much variation so many different styles and, and themes you, you can't really get bored with it i don't think
final album for the show is uh, like my one suggestion for it, uh, and I don't think either Rob or Robbie was particularly familiar with this band beforehand. Another kind of supergroup, although almost a supergroup post the forming of this band. This is Spiritual Beggars, um, and we're going to go for their fourth album, I believe, Ad Astra, uh, released in 2000 on Victor Records. This is um, main, the main side project of Mike and Mott, actually formed before Arch Enemy upon leaving Carcass. Um, obviously, Arch Enemy started getting very successful soon into their runtime, and this very much became his side endeavour. Um, this features most of what was the kind of famous lineup for a time. Um, we have uh, drummer Ludwig Witt and bass player and vocalist Spice, um, who will, I think, will recall for all of the first four um, albums, and also new member on this album, uh, organ, keyboard, Mellotron player, Pierre Weirberg. So a lot of these have since gone on to be really successful musicians, but before this point, kind of lesser known. Like Ludwig has since joined uh, Grand Magus and was also part of the Swedish uh, band Shining for a little while. I think he was on one or two albums. Yeah, he was. Spice has had a fair few projects of his own, um, and one named after himself, the band of Spice. Uh, <laughs> I've not listened to many of these, but probably worth checking out. He's got a really nice voice. And Pierre Weirberg, uh, famed, very brief member of Opeth. I think he Ghost Reveries and Watershed. And then his, and his head's falling off on the, <laughs> um, the cover of Heritage. Yeah, I think he recorded <laughs> most of the keyboards of Heritage. Also um, done a lot of guest keyboards on most of the Arch Enemy albums and recently Psalms of the Dead by Candlemass. This album is very much, like, actually similar to the last one we covered, this is very much Mike getting out his classic rock love. Like, this is a lot of um, old prog rock leanings, like, really heavy-sounding Hammond organs all through this mix. Mm. So a lot of, like, Uriah Heap kind of love there. And, yeah, and definitely guitar-wise, it's kind of leaning towards this kind of love of the Scorpions. I think this is entirely a project of... His writing, I, I believe the other members are very much along for the ride. But yeah, so what did you two reckon to this? Uh, sorry, you, Ollie, as you've not come to it before. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I uh, I found myself putting it on and, and sort of listening to it and you know, doing other things. And then before I knew it, it was coming to the end. So there was uh, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't very jarring or anything at all. Uh, I, I found that I had to really sort of force myself to... Like really focus on it and then sort of take it in but uh, yeah it's a great album really enjoyed it cool uh, how about you Rob? I, I found it insanely catchy I really really liked it it reminded me a lot of um, when I was first getting into Monster Magnet and getting Power Trip for the first time just really catchy really well written sort of rock with some heavier elements but this sort of stern rock style stuff with um, really nice vocals as well reminded me quite a lot of um, Caius and for a while I thought it was John Garcia from Caius <laughs> um, but it really, really reminds me of that but put it in a different style of this really catchy essentially rock music so I, I really liked it yeah, so effectively, like the makeup of each song is quite similar. We have a few departures towards the end of uh, On Dark Rivers and Mantra, but the main style of these songs are kind of classic rock songs, uh, kind of verse chorus structure, normally a long middle eight where you have a lot of like guitar and ham and organ trade off in the solos, um, and it's all led by Spice's very bombastic, uh, mm. yeah, stoner or classic rock vocal approach. The, the main thing that separates this a lot from the kind of older albums is 
the guitars are really detuned. So we've like they're playing in C standard or even B in places. I think like to make these really hefty sounding riffs that go along, but effectively just detuned classic rock riffs. Mm, mm. Because it it never sounds like I don't know something like Carcass or anything like that. Mm, even mm. though uh, some of it's in the same tuning, it m- remains this really catchy. Uh, and a lot of times really melodic sort of atmosphere to it, despite being, you know, really quite detuned compared to most classic rock or stoner stuff. Yeah, I felt that it had a real sort of rock feel to it. Uh, there's, there's certainly that sort of stoner influence in some of the songs are quite have that sort of fuzz feel to them, I think, that mm. um, that's very sort of definitive of stoner rock. I wouldn't say that uh, the vocalist sounded much like John Gracia in my opinion but um, I, I did really enjoy the vocals um, I, I thought that they were quite unique I think a, probably a very good comparison for Spice actually is the vocalist who briefly joined the band after him of JB from Grand Magus but they both have this very um, yeah very powerful vocal approach like something that could really you know is able to really lead a band like, the uh, major difference in this album, actually, say, to, like, Truck Fighters earlier, another kind of rock and stoner influence one, is we have a completely different production here. One, bass isn't that audible on this yeah, album. It's yeah. fairly in the mix. Also, this is so clean by comparison. Like, it is very clean and clear, and you you can tell Michael's really produced, or got involved in the producing. I think it's uh, Frederick Nonson who does the production for this. But it's really, like, his solos are so clear and front and centre when those bits of guitaring come in. Which, which you'd always imagine from someone like Michael Hammer. And it's, it's nice to hear in a way, because Truck Fighters and some of the other bands we've covered, the solos aren't the most important thing on the album, really. Uh, and on this, it's nice to hear some really nice, in the vein of old classic rock stuff where you had really competent, really nice solos being put on top, it's nice to hear a different take on the same sort of idea, just with this really competent guitar playing. Yeah, I'd argue any Michael Amott project is slowly led towards <laughs> effectively the guitar solos being front and centre. <laughs> he is a master of writing this super melodic, not that technical, but still a little solo. Like, pretty, like for the most part, they're pretty memorable. You can hum mm. most of them. This definitely doesn't descend into kind of like just total guitar wankery. They're fairly <laughs> short as well. Like, he does kind of keep it within bounds. Like, the song's. Songs never really get much beyond like the four or five minute mark. Mm. As you're saying, there's some more sort of uh, variation on sort of the later bits of the album, like on Dark Rivers, where there's a lot of slide guitar and stuff like that. And it's really nice to hear that song's got a very different tone to a lot of the catchier rock songs at the beginning of the album. Like a little bit more psychedelic, like we've been saying. A lot of these albums, some of them have quite psychedelic tendencies. And towards the end of this album, you do find some of that as well, which is nice to hear the variation. Yeah, again, it was a very interesting album. There was a lot of as you said, a lot of variation. Some of the songs were uh, very mellow. The mantra at the end is uh, a very much slower and sort of deep song, I guess. It's just sort of very relaxing and really good like end to the album. Mm-hmm. So, so like mantra, the final track on the album, is one of the longer tracks. It starts effectively, I think it's just Hammond organ for the first three minutes of the song with Spice's vocals over the top of it. And this, well worth checking out, eventually builds into an awesomely heavy guitar riff mm. and then effectively Pierre and Mike just solo off to the end of the album. A very like strong closer for an album. Possibly the strongest of a lot of the set we've been through. It just it brings it to a very definite end and yeah, it really has the kind of feel 
like a kind of capturing the feel of a classic rock gig live. Yeah, that that sort of a Hammond organ and guitar trade off, like sort of classic Deep Purple, where it's or sometimes um, perhaps not so on this album, but you know, harking back to the time where they were trying to push the two instruments away, you couldn't really tell which one was which because they both had that really intense, heavy in a way sound, and it harks back to that, which is really nice to hear. And, and also includes the classic drummer does a bit of a drum solo at the end building up to a big crash mm. then does another bit of a drum solo building up to an even bigger one to to close it out mm. um, yeah beyond that like sort of lyric themes of this album are very classic stoner rock fodder this is a lot of kind of like talking about drug addiction and depression I think one of my favourites actually is the first track Left Brain Ambassador which is just a song about someone who's really boring <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that's pretty much the <laughs> the whole of it um, yeah so uh, the track earlier uh, Rob mentioned On Dark Rivers possibly the responsible like what's responsible for this kind of slight departure from the rest of the album like is with um, I don't know if he's guest wrote it but we get a lot of guest guitaring from Chris Amott, Mike's mm. younger brother. Um, yeah, at this point, still an arch enemy with him. Like, this is... Yeah, I, I guess, bar this track and Mantra, the album does very much continue on in a pattern. Like, songs yeah. are pretty similar stylized, like style-wise. I don't know, how, how do you two feel about that? Yeah, um, I don't know. I felt that there was quite a lot of variation between the different songs. Um, they, they certainly all have their uniqueness to them, I suppose. Um, yeah, similar style for the most part. But uh, but yeah, they were definitely very... Yeah, I, I guess that's fair, because you've got, say, uh, tracks like Sedated, which are more led by Ludwig, just like really showing off with these mm. very complex drum grooves into Angel of Betrayal, which is like just your classic super catchy heavy rock songs probably got one of the most memorable choruses off the album and then when you get to Blessed and Ad Astra they're far more kind of ballady choruses I guess Just mm. highlight Ludwig's drumming as well because he, he's a really great drummer particularly now he's been in Grand Magus as well like he really cements himself as a really solid drummer who can hold the band together really nicely and then he's uh, been in the Swedish Shining as well so he can blast if he really needs to but he really helps hold this album together yeah, between him and Spice, they really center this kind of groove that keeps the album catchy and like really memorable throughout. Mm. I suppose it, perhaps the album could benefit from the bass being turned out, but I think that about a lot of albums. So yeah, I quite like a strong bass feel to mm. the music that I listen to as well. I think this is kind of fixed post this. So Spice um, leaves the band pretty soon after this album, I believe. They might have done one more. I can't remember the order of releases. I think he was kicked out mainly for being too drunk when playing live. <laughs> and he was replaced by um, JB of Grand Magus yeah. for two albums and also uh, Charlie D'Angelo of Arch Enemy on bass. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. so we do get on, on uh, probably the other Spiritual Beggars album I'd highly recommend, Demons. You do get that more fleshed out bass sound. Mm. And yeah, otherwise uh, Ludwig and Beer, I think, have continued on in the band forever. I'll definitely have to check out some of their other albums. I was uh, yeah, quite impressed by this one. I would like this album. I got many years ago um, when I was discovering metal and just got into Arch Enemy and become like a Mike Amor obsessive. <laughs> um, yeah, this was the first uh, Spiritual Beggars album I got. I wouldn't say many of their other albums hold up to this standard. The one before it, Mantra, is very good, and the first with JB Demons is very good. 
but a lot of the others have a tendency more towards classic rock where okay. like, the guitars aren't so down-tuned. It, it doesn't feel so much like Mike Hammett doing something original as this one does. A lot of them feel like we're just going to do another classic rock album, which I find disappointing. I don't know whether that's the general opinion or not of this band. Mm. Like, okay. I'm not really sure how their arms are being received. I mean, they're not they're not particularly known. They'll never be on like, despite being a supergroup, will never quite be on par with Arch Enemy. I don't think yeah, uh, yeah. success wise. So it was a bit of a difficult choice what we'd play from this album. Um, I would be quite tempted by Mantra, but I think it's too long. <laughs> um, so we went for um, Sedated, which is, as I said, like obvious straight away. Like Ludwig's really driving drum parts. Mm. And then, like, I think he has two long solo breaks of, yeah, very melodic, very well-written guitar parts. And then possibly the worst ending to a song I've ever heard. <laughs> uh, the End of Ocean Machine by um, Devin Townsend with Thing Beyond Things, which ends with a horrendous Devin Townsend scream at the end of a really calm song. But yeah, this is a bad ending. But a yeah. great song. <laughs> great, great song. It doesn't ruin it. But effectively, much like in Mantra, Ludwig builds up to a big... A big outro where it looks like they're going to come down heavy on a chord. And instead of doing that, everyone stops and they just brush a cymbal gently. <laughs> uh, I was in a band when I was 15 playing blues music where we recorded a similar track. It's about a 10 minute jam we'd built up to a really big outro. And then our drummer decided it'd be interesting to, instead of crash, just hit a woodblock gently. And it completely ruined the song. <laughs> this, this isn't quite as bad, but it, it does always strike me as slightly jarring. Uh, so this is sedated. Don't you lose my soul 